from finishing our study here in the Gospel of John that we've been on for not quite a year, but getting close to it here. Anybody remember what we, what did we look at this last week? John 15, about Christ and abiding in him, he's divine, you're the branches. It uh, was a challenging lesson, I hope, and it was to me teaching it and studying it, and I hope it was to you hearing it. Um, this is another one that's a really good um, lesson here and some things you don't might necessarily normally consider or look at in, um, in this one here. It's a kind of neat uh, slide so you'll get to see a little bit and everything too. You might notice we were in John 15 last week, right? So if we're in John 17 this week, there might be something in the middle. You're right. I, know, I, don't, I don't know if it was just for space and time, but this uh, study actually kind of skips over John chapter 16, and Jesus just kind of uh, a little bit of a summary kind of of what Jesus talks about in John 16. He's again, he's just preparing them again. Remember, this is his last words. They're literally on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane here. Um, so these are his last words to his disciples. In John 16, he starts off talking about, no, these things have I spoken unto you that you should, should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And that was fulfilled in one particular man, if you can think of, in the book of Acts, by the name of Saul of Tarsus, wasn't it? You can see that later. He talks more about the comforter that would come, talking about the spirit of truth has come, and he will guide you into all truth. He continues that there. He, again, even prophesies of his resurrection again in this. In verse 16, he says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And then, a little while, and ye shall see me. Because I go to my Father. Then he talks about, the world's going to rejoice, and you're going to weep. But your morning's going to be turned into joy after, the, after his resurrection. Again, it sounds like someone who's totally taken by surprise by the cross, right? And Jesus, right? Obviously not. Completely false to have that. <laughs> and then he ends it in verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So chapter 17, we'll go read that here. Verse 1 says, These things spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And we'll go around and read that. Oh, sorry. sorry. <laughs> and thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know that he is the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee, and the I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the, unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. 
now that I've known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send, that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. For now I am come no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to come to thee, Holy Father, to keep their, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. When I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come, and now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated, hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. But for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are. I in them, and thou in me, that they might, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved me. Love them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will also, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these things have I known that thou hast sent, that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. That the, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So what's Christ doing in this passage? <coughs> you kind of can see it right there. This is a prayer of Christ. It's not just him speaking to his disciples here. This is a prayer of Christ himself in this passage. Um, so again, kind of stepping back just a minute. Again, they're on their way. The previous three lessons, and then we kind of dealt with the words of Christ spoken during the Last Supper, and then on the way, it's the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, as he as they continued toward Gethsemane, he stops and prays here. Again, we kind of just showed approximate route. He has a good chance he actually went through the temple um, on the way. Again, out out here to down the, the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, Bethphage and Bethany are over here. Mount of Olives is right there. Um, we're not told where he made this prayer, where he prayed. Some think that it might have been in the temple, which is no, a good possibility because he likely walked through it on their way you know, to the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, so if he prayed in the temple, 
It might have been in either the royal stoa. Anybody else remember what else would have happened? Significance in that place in the temple? Chapter 2 of John. It's where he ran out the money changers and everything. Solomon's porch. Anybody remember where the, another thing that happened in that area? John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. Remember he gave his sermon about his sheep. Again, again this is kind of looking east. If you're here again, um, so that's this is Solomon's porch, and that's the royal stoa there of the temple. So again, you're looking east. Mount of Olives is over here. So it's a good chance that he did it in either the royal stoa or Solomon's porch out here. But wherever he prayed, it was one of the greatest utterances of the Lord on this earth, and as you'll see here. Um, a lot of people call it the high priestly prayer. You could call it the real Lord's prayer <laughs> in one way, not just the model prayer from Matthew 6 that he gave to his disciples. But we're going to call it in this lesson Christ's intercessory prayer for us here. So you think about this. What a moment that would have been. You know, think about the moon shining down on this group of 12 you know, as they make their way down the rocky street toward the temple. You no, know, The disciples knew they probably where they were headed They're probably because they, they frequented that place, Jesus did, it seemed, the Garden of Gethsemane. But on this particular night, it was a little different because the Lord had startled them you know, with the news that one of them is going to betray him, and he's already doing it. Peter was going to deny him three times before sunrise. And in chap back in chapter 14, um, Judas Thaddeus, not Judas Iscariot, had detected a little bit of a change you know, in Christ's talk of what he was talking about. Again, we don't go back and look at it. But they also kind of seem to be an air of heaviness almost in Christ's speech and attitude. You know, his words indicated he was leaving them. But why? You know, as they wondered, you know, they followed him, of course, into the silent stone porches through the temple. This is actually interesting right here. This is actually a rendering of the steps that would have led up from the Haggai or the Tyropian Valley into the royal stoa at the top. So again... It's actually that right there. Um, so that right there. A rendering of that. Today, all that remains of that is just a small part of this archway that supported the bridge um, across there that led into the temple. The remnant of that archway was discovered by archaeologist Edwin Robinson. If you ever heard of Robinson's Arch, I think that's what it's talking about. Um, in Christ's day, the main street of Jerusalem ran under that and then along the entire western wall of the temple which you've ever heard of the wailing wall that's the western wall which actually all that is is just like the part of the retaining wall of the temple that was left after what the romans got done with it the street of jerusalem main street would have ran underneath that arch and have followed all the way along the western wall of the temple there so somewhere on here the lord would have stopped probably knelt on the pavement and poured out his heart to the Father here. And again, this is only a very, very short time, say a couple hours, before his arrest. The Father and the Son met in the temple. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have been there and heard that? John, who was there, recorded it for us here. So in this prayer, Jesus prays kind of for three things. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, 
and he prays for all future believers in this passage. So we're going to look at each one of those aspects here of his prayer. Praying for himself. Now Jesus began his prayer here by reporting to the Father that he'd completed the job that the Father had given him to do. He then made two requests in light of that finished job. The first one is, you see in verse um, 4, as I glorify thee on the earth, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. So what work had he finished? Didn't he finish his work on the cross? Didn't he cry from the cross, it's finished? How then could he pray fully 12 hours before that event, I have finished the work? things to think about the work finished in verse 4 and the work finished on the cross are kind of two different things the work mentioned in verse 4 was the work of glorifying the father by calling out and training a body of disciples who would continue his work after his ascension Christ had finished that work by this point the disciples were ready they didn't know it at the time He had glorified the Father by finishing that particular job. The work of redemption, however, of course, wouldn't be finished until his death the next afternoon and then his resurrection a couple days later. So note how he performed the work of preparing his disciples. First, he had given eternal life to them. If you look in verse 2, As thou hast given him power, talking about the Son, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou, the Father, hast given him, the Son. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Excuse me. He had the power to give eternal life to those who God gave him. So who are those who God gave him? Those who believed on him. And he said, none of them's lost, but son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. To those people, he gave eternal life. And you think about this, this took place all the way back in John chapter 1, or at least five of them. Anybody remember who those five are from chapter 1? Can you see Peter? Andrew with his brother? Philip? Daniel, and the unnamed one, right? Most likely was John on there. So we won't go back and look at that for time's sake. We also see he had taught his disciples. And you can see that in John chapter 2 all the way to John chapter 16 that we've already looked at here. He taught them. Again, we're talking about the finished work that Christ had done. And how he had prepared his disciples. He had saved them. He taught them. You see, they had received his word. If you look in verse 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. And they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. They didn't know everything. But they did know that. You think about how many times that Jesus talked about them. Whom say men that I am? Or whom say ye that I am? Of course, you see those. That's when Peter answered for the group. No, thou art the Christ, son of God. They'd received it. And then they also had believed it. As we, as I just mentioned there. 
So again, this is talking about Christ praying for himself. He um, talk, We see the finished work, again, of preparing his disciples and preparing, laying the foundation. Ephesians talks about laid on the foundation of the apostles there. We also see he also makes now about himself two requests. Verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son, that this son also may glorify thee. He asks to be glorified in his death. Christ wanted his death to be of a nature that it would bring glory to the Father throughout all ages. Because remember, his real desire, I speak not of myself, his real desire wasn't for self-glory, but that he might glorify the Father. We see that all throughout the Gospel of John. This is the will of the Father, the will of the Father that sent me. I and the Father are one. We see that all throughout the Gospel of John. And now it's specifically glorify thee in my death, basically. And you know what? Has that prayer been answered? <laughs> that prayer has been gloriously answered. More than 2,000 years, people around the world sing of his death, preach of his death, testify of the power of his death for the last 2,000 years of human history. And you know, think of it. Satan wanted him dead, right? <laughs> Didn't exactly get he wished. And would do everything he could to prevent it. Because he tried to do it before the time, and even then. Revelation 5, we won't look at it, it's talking about the, uh, the four and twenty elders, and then the four beasts you know, around the throne talking about the lamb that was slain is worthy to receive glory and honor and power and riches, etc. Um, that's going to be throughout eternity, talking about that. And he also asks to be glorified in the presence of the Father. Think of Philippians 2, when they're talking about Christ, that, that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. He asked to be glorified in the presence of the Father. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. You see his preexistence right there talked about. Jesus longed to go home. The world didn't have any attraction for him. For at least 33 years, he had lived a lonely life, suffering on earth, and he anticipated his soon return to glory, where he'd be seated at the right hand of the Father, and would once more share in that. This is an interesting statement here, that we mortals have no idea what price the Lord paid to give up heaven and live on earth. You just can't really understand that and fathom that. But it's two requests that Jesus makes here praying about himself to be glorified in his death. And again, not him. He's talking about the Father. And then to be glorified in the presence of the Father once again. So then secondly, he prays for his disciples here in this section. You know, although he had trained his disciples well, he knew they were but men. There would be three enemies that would soon attack them as soon as he ascended into heaven. Because remember, he was kind of their protector when he was here with them. Of course, you see the world, verse 17, the devil, 
the evil one in verse 15, and then their own flesh. So we see he makes two requests for his disciples here in this passage. First one is in verses 11 to 12. It says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now while Jesus was on the earth, he kept them. We see the I in verse 12. Now, it's like as if he's turning them over to the Father. Of course, you think the keeping refers both to their salvation and their sanctification there. Isn't it great to know that he does the keeping and not us? Imagine these poor, confused disciples trying to keep themselves after he left. You know? The, um, they wouldn't stand a chance. We wouldn't stand a chance. They'd be like the sheep mentioned in John 10 that were helpless without a shepherd facing the wolves. And how sad that some people think that they must keep themselves. How insecure and afraid that must be when all the time that job's been given to the Father. Talk if you think of John 10, 27, and I give them unto them eternal life, and no man shall pluck them out of my Father's hand. So to keep them, but then also, secondly, to sanctify them. What does sanctify mean? A couple different definitions you probably could think of for it. What's the idea of to sanctify, to sanct- be sanctified? idea of being set apart exactly um you can think about it as their life here christians have been set apart from the world sanctified and again sanctified kind of has a number of different aspects to it um kind of think of it as threefold there's the positional kind of which is kind of meant here the practical and then future and that no in this passage you see god setting christians apart from the world in position, again, heavenly places of Christ. Talk about that. We're servants of Christ, not slaves to sin. Set apart in that way. Our practice should be submitted to the Spirit's work and conforming us to that position. And then in the future, where we'll be glorified and set free permanently from the influences of sin flesh on that to sanctify them so um, this is a a crazy statement thinking about here imagine it God the Father and the Son so desire a holy life in us that they've sanctified us and in their private conversations they talk about our life that is so interesting to think about so what do you think they talk about about you about me. Yeah, that Tim Reader guy do a lot better if he just listened to me more. He'd listen to my spirit and the prodding of the spirit and not put it down. You know what? Think about that for your life. How do you think that conversation goes about you? It's kind of humbling to think about. But that's what he's doing here. He's talking about people, his disciples, us. 
in their private conversations. So he prays for his disciples to keep them and the Father to sanctify them. Of course, you see kind of a common verse we see in John 17, 17, but think about it in the context of what he's talking about here. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's through God's word that we are set apart, that we live how we learn to live, how the Spirit works in through that to sanctify us more in our practice for our position and then our future eventually. But now, again, kind of already talked about those positional, practical, future, if there's kind of a blank there to fill in on that. But third, he's going to move on here. Again, talked about he prayed for himself, prays for his disciples, and then he also here is going to pray for us, literally. He's going to pray about us in these next couple verses for all future believers Verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, talking about his disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Because you know, see here, how all future believers would believe through their word, through the word of these trained disciples that he had spent and invested the last couple years with and in. No wonder he was so concerned with them being kept. If they were overcome by the world, the flesh and the devil, future believers would not hear or listen to the gospel. If you think about it, our opportunity for salvation came by the faithfulness of these 11 men. And if you even boil that down further, our um, opportunity for salvation came by the faithfulness of somebody. Similarly, Salvation of the next generation rests in our hands to move it on. So look, at there's two specific things again here that Christ prays for concerning future believers. Kind of can see in um, verse 21, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. I am them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast loved me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That we might be one. First, kind of two aspects of this, one with the Father and the Son in fellowship with them. You see that in verse 21. Because before everything else, our fellowship with the Father and the Son is the most important relationship we can have. Because that... Everything else flows down from that. So question, are you in perfect oneness with the Lord in your attitude or actions or language or desires? Um, and a challenging question. Then he also says, essentially, one with each other in verse 22. Again, you see, harmony is so important. Jealousy is so evil in this talks about through unity and Christian love, love for the brethren, men see our salvation. Disunity, criticism, arguing, bickering is a turnoff. There's, uh, there's some who like to use this passage, however, to talk about this, why we all need to have unity. Drop our differences, 
know, we need to come together. Anybody who claims the name of Christ, we just need to be unified and stop fighting amongst ourselves and this. There's a thing called unity and truth, though. If he just said a couple verses before, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. If it doesn't line up with God's word, how can you have unity with it if you were trying to have through God's word? Amos talks about, can two walk together except they be agreed? So you can't let this passage say something that imply that it doesn't. It's through God's word. And again, you could argue even more further that this type of unity is truly seen in the context of a local church as well, but not necessarily talking about that right now. Again, he's talking about his prayer for all future believers, that they might be one, of course, with the Father and the Son, with each other. And then second, in verse 24, this is kind of another really interesting one. Father, I will that they also, so who's he talking about here? Um, talking about future believers here, that they also, because we've talked about there a couple verses before, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He wants us to be one with him in glory. The Lord wants us to be with him. He's, remember John 14? He's preparing a place for us, and he'll soon come again to answer that prayer. He wants us in glory with him. He wants us home, too, because he wants us to behold his glory. He wants us to see it for ourselves. Of course, right now, we walk by faith and not by sight, but he wants us there with him. Maybe that's why it says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. So in this prayer, we see our Lord's heart, though. Again, this is all a conversation between the Father and the Son. If you kind of keep all this in that context, it's really interesting. It is a glimpse into the divine conversation that should encourage our hearts and increase our faith. Again, he's praying for you. He prayed for you. We're the center of his thoughts, his attention, and his every action. So what role does he play in your thoughts and attention? that question around is a little challenging, isn't it? So let's go to some of the, the questions here in the book to, to finish us off here. There's actually on 224 and then 225, there's kind of some things that would happen actually between this lesson and the next with the other Gospels talk about the actually his you know, passion in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. John doesn't record that, um, but the other Gospels do, and so that was the point of that kind of a summary. Of course, they would sing a hymn, and they would go to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ would ask them to sit while he prayed, and then, of course, he'd take his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, further with himself, ask them to pray. Christ would pray for the hour to pass if it was possible, but God's will was going to be done, not his. And he'd come back, find him asleep, chide him. Three times he did that with his disciples, with his three. 
Peter, James, and John. Isn't that interesting? How many times did Peter deny him? How many times was he supposed to have been praying before that? Interesting. Then he would continue praying, and then third time, sleep on. Arise, let us go. He's ready. The battle's been won in private with him, and he was ready to go evidence it publicly. And he who was going to betray him was at hand. Of course, he'd go to Gethsemane, pray again for the cup to be removed, again continue, and then an angel would appear again. Luke talks about it. Angel appeared, strengthening him. And that's where he would sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. We'll actually talk about that next week a little bit in a different context. But questions here. First one. So what do you think Jesus means when he says that eternal life is knowing the Father in Christ? Isn't that interesting? We think of, oh yeah, get saved and I'll have eternal life later. Not necessarily. What does it say in verse 3? If you're saved, you have eternal life now. That's because it's a relationship with God now. It's not a future. Of course, there's many aspects of it. But if you're saved, you have eternal life now. So what does Jesus' statement of how he glorified God suggest about how we can do likewise? So what does Jesus' statement of how he glorified the Father suggest about how we can do likewise? Pressing on to accomplish the work he's given us. Because we've been given a job, right? Just as Jesus did. So what do you think Jesus meant when he said that the Father gave men, or his disciples, to Jesus out of the world? So what do you think he meant when he talks about the Father had given to the men that thou hast given me, the ones that thou hast given me, out of the world? And you think about kind of the idea of sanctified, set apart, out of the world. The disciples that the Father had entrusted to him, the ones. So what does verse 17 suggest the word of God accomplishes in our lives? How does it make us different from what we have been? So what does verse 17 suggest the word of God accomplishes in our lives? How does it make us different from what we have been? What's verse 17 say? Somebody read it. What does it suggest the word of God accomplishes in our lives? And how does it make us different from what we have been? Because again, sanctified, set apart, made holy. This is the process in our lives. Again, how we have victory over sin, become more like Christ through God's word and what he does. This is another put yourself in their shoes questions, but imagine that you were one of the disciples hearing this prayer on your behalf. What part would have had the greatest impact on you? Kind of put your 
yourself in their shoes a little bit again, and you're hearing this, what would have made the greatest impact on you? Interesting question. Any thoughts on that? Let's go to the next one. Again, this is a, now put yourself in your shoes. Christ prays for future believers in addition to the disciples. Since that includes us today, what part of his prayer do you think is most important for us? For our time? All of us, right? Yeah. You just see, asked a couple chapters later, what is truth? Someone asked that exact question. The, um, again, where it's found, it's not in our, our thoughts, our opinions, our feelings. It's actually interesting. I'd seen uh, a, little, a little booklet. I'd seen a little bit of it. But uh, Joseph Smith. Knows who that is? Is Joseph Smith? You've heard the name. Mormons. He's the founder of the Mormons back in the 1800s. It's actually uh, when he was a young man, something like I think he was like a teenager, basically. Talk about there's like revivals and stuff that have been going through. You know, the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians in his area. So he's like trying to figure out, you know, what's the right thing? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to follow this? And then out one day, he had a None of them are right. And lots of divineness, the tablets, and the things that were set on it, and all kinds of crazy things that finished it, but it didn't direct him back to God's work. It was his thought, his vision, what he experienced. Peter, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, talking about God's word. Guarantee you, Peter's was a lot more impressive than Joseph Smith's experience on that. A couple things to me that's really important is that Christ not was only praying for them, but again was praying for all those us. Yep. And Jesus' prayer cannot fail. Think about that. Has it been answered? Every single part of it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for today. Thank you for just the lessons in here. Thank you that your prayer for us, that you are praying for us still. And um, help us to um, fulfill that in our lives again, that we, your word would be what sets us apart. We'd be in it and growing and letting it, washing the water by the word, letting it cleanse our hearts and our minds, making us more like you. Thank you for, again, just the lessons we've been able to see and what you've done in our hearts and lives today. I ask you to be with the service to come and be with pastor as he speaks. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.